but we're only going to these top 10 deemed schools that we've deemed Mm -hmm. that the best talent comes from, right? We want to build a more diverse team, but we haven't changed anything about the way that we source talent, right? So um, because we haven't changed the way we source talent, where we go, because we haven't looked at how we even interview people, right? You know, do we put these panels in place where everyone in the panel has a very clear sort of focused idea in their mind about what good talent looks like, right? Or what experiences they have to have that makes them, you know, sort of a good candidate for this position. If we put a goal in place, but haven't changed the way we think about what good looks like or what it has to be or anything about our process that makes it more inclusive of people who don't fit into the mold of what we've you know historically deemed as important then we're going to continue to get the same result or if we do bring on some new talent the culture that we've created isn't one that is conducive for them to be able to thrive Welcome to Inclusion and Marketing, the show that's all about helping you uncover the skills and insights you need to win the attention, adoration, and loyalty of more consumers, especially those with differences that are often ignored by brands. I'm your host, Sonia Thompson, an inclusive brand coach, strategist, and someone with a lot of differences. Let's get to it. Okay, I've got another podcast recommendation for you. It's Latinx in Power, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez. It's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. This podcast features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insight from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their fields. I like listening to this podcast because I like hearing from a broad diversity of voices and hearing from and learning from their experiences. One episode I'm super excited to dive into is the latest one, Lead Generation Journey with Glenville Dixon Jr. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is a bonus episode. It's an in-depth conversation I had with Sarah Chin Spellings, venture capitalist and host of the Billion Dollar Moves podcast. In this episode, Sarah and I cover a lot of topics ranging from what makes marketing truly inclusive, how to focus your efforts by going narrow to reach a wider audience, as well as best practices for building a high-performing, diverse team. This chat is a good one, if I do say so myself. And since I was the guest on Sarah's Billion Dollar Moves podcast, you'll hear me chatting much more than you do when I'm interviewing someone for this show. So, all right, without further ado, here's my chat with Sarah. All right, we are recording. Good morning, Sonia. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited for to be here chatting with you and for our discussion. I think we're going to get like really into it. So <laughs> love it. Yes. So Sonia Thompson, I'd love for you to introduce yourself uh, to the crowd, to the folks that tune in to Bill and Dolly Moves and why today is important. Sure. Uh, I am Sonia Thompson. I am an inclusive brand coach, strategist, and speaker. And I basically help um, brands, marketers, business leaders attract and retain diverse customers and talent. 
um, just because there's not one or the other, right? As we're looking to reach more people um, with the, the products and the services that we deliver, having talent that is reflective of the people that you serve and making sure that you're making the people that you want to serve feel like they belong with you is a critical aspect of being able to do that. Absolutely. And well, I'll I'll add why this is important for our audience. You know, uh, we were talking a little bit in the prelude there, uh, but I work with investment teams. I work with venture capitalists, uh, limited partner investors that are thinking hard about the way they are leading forward. Uh, diversity, equity, inclusion is a big topic. And especially in times where the market feels a little bit tough. Uh, you know, there's already, uh, I, I guess, a consensus that we are in a recession. And as with marketing, uh, oftentimes diversity, equity, inclusion becomes an afterthought, right? And it shouldn't be. And we want to talk a little bit about, you know, your thoughts in how we can do better and how we can actually make billion dollar moves by making diversity our pillar of growth. Sure. A lot of times people um, think about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a nice to do, as something that's like politically correct, as something that's an HR sort of initiative, without necessarily realizing that it is a growth lever. One, because it helps you, if you think about it in terms of your values and as a strategic lever, in terms of how you're able to better engage the people that you want to serve, you realize how critical it is. So as we're thinking about um, reaching more people, the world is becoming smaller in terms of the connectivity that we have with each other. Um, each brand is now sort of, as we think about are being in a recession, fighting tooth and nail for every customer that they get. And our customers that we're serving, the people that we're trying to reach with our products and services are increasingly becoming more and more diverse. If we look at Gen mm -hmm. Z, for instance, they are the most diverse generation, and this is globally, right? Um, they have very different values in terms of um, their expectations of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. They have very different values in terms of their expectation of the brands in which they're buying from and engaging from in terms of how they're engaging with different communities. And whenever we talk about diversity, we're talking really about um, a number of different dimensions of diversity. It isn't just race or gender, um, or ethnicity. It also includes sexual orientation. It includes, um, degrees of abledness. It includes age. It includes body size and type family type of, um, makeup. There's a number of different dimensions, not to say that you have to decide that you're serving all of those, but it's important to be aware that the people that we're serving are different. And we're in a new day where people have the expectation that the brands um, that they're interacting with are going to acknowledge the differences that we have individually and meet and serve those differences. So going back to um, is diversity something that we can afford to put on the back burner? No, it's not, right? Because inclusion, inclusive marketing, and operating in an inclusive manner is really the future of marketing, right? It's the future of the way in which businesses operate. And those brands, those companies, um, those startups who are reluctant 
to sort of hop on board and embrace this are going to find themselves fighting the future and being forced to, unfortunately, um, they're going to be forced to do it later on. It's kind of like digital marketing, right? Um, there mm. were a lot of people, you know, maybe 10 years ago who were reluctant to get on board with like the digital train. Um, and then what happened? Like it didn't go away. It wasn't a trend. It wasn't a fad. It just became integrated into the way that we operate. And inclusion is fast approaching that same way. Yeah. And Sonia, you know, I, I think you deepen the wall of marketing and, and deepen the work of inclusive marketing. But of course, our audience uh, may not be as well-versed as you, the expert. Can you tell us a little bit about when you think about inclusive marketing, what would you say are the three top tenets of what makes a marketing initiative or a marketing strategy truly inclusive? Sure. So inclusive marketing, and I alluded to this before, it's not necessarily about serving everybody. It's acknowledging that the people who have the problem that your business solves are different it's being intentional about choosing which of those differences that you're going to serve and then incorporating that particular audience into in, in the differences or the needs that they have into um, everything that you're doing from a customer experience standpoint, from a marketing mix standpoint, thinking about the team that you're hiring um, because you want them to be reflective. So first and foremost, you want to make sure that as you are defining who the people who are going to be using your products and services as you're defining who they are, that you consider all the different ways in which they could be different. So for instance, if you have a product that you want to target to women, right? Um, how women aren't all the same, right? Um, does this mean, is this women of, you know, a certain age? Does this include, um, uh, does this include women who are married? Does this include women who have children? Does this include Muslim women or um, Jewish women? Or does it include women who are in wheelchairs, right? Like there's a broad range um, and you need to consider, does this include pregnant women, right? Um, and this going through and understanding how people can be different then opens you up to figuring out, okay, Based upon the differences that we want to serve, how can we then adjust different elements of the way in which we communicate, possibly even different elements of the product that we're building, um, mm -hmm. so that they understand that we designed what it is that we're doing with them in mind, and they say, ah, oh, this brand really gets me. Um, they've taken the time to consider me and my unique needs. And because of that, not only am I going to buy from them, I'll probably buy from them again and again and again. And this is, um, and then I'll tell my friends about them. So people who in particular are accustomed to being underserved or ignored by brands, whenever there is a brand that all of a sudden caters to their needs, sees them, um, then they tend to be quite loyal. <laughs> and we know a loyal customer is what we all want, right? They buy more, um, they're easier mm -hmm. to service, and they tell their friends, right? They're like a dream come true. Um, so I think it really goes to starting on defining how are the ways in which the people that we want to serve 
how are the, what are the ways in which they can be different? And then figuring out which of those differences that you want to serve. Everything else sort of falls into place after that, but you have to make sure that you're not um, being so broad or so specific that you are sort of um, not able to take into account the ways in which people are different. Right. So, you know, this is uh, very relevant, I think, for a lot of uh, startup founders that tune in that are looking to scale, right? So we're not at the zero to one. A lot of our founders here are unicorns and are thinking one to 10 global expansion. And in fact, I had one founder on that was set on global expansion because, you know, it's empire building. It feels good right. for the ego. But she realized very quickly that she was not tuning in to what her customer actually wants and thought that, of course, you know, I'm a great entrepreneur, take my product. So when you think about, you know, building that customer persona, I mean, something you said that uh, really caught me in that you need to think about the people you're serving, but you can't do it in a too broad a fashion. So can you, I guess, dive into the detail of Say you're an entrepreneur, right? You're mm -hmm. thinking about global markets, global expansion. How do you do that in a way where it's not too broad, but not too narrow? I One strategy that I love um, in terms of helping people think about um, expansion and making sure that you're specifically making the people that you want to serve feel like they belong is thinking about the niche consumer and using them as your lead consumer because you're going to get a spillover effect, right? So if you design for, um, let's say one of the things that I love, um, my husband is from Argentina, right? Um, and we recently moved to the US and I um, love the fact that as he's going through this journey of learning English, there are a number of products that he is able to use um, where there is no friction at all because of the language, right? Because the, the um, person who was designing the product thought about, oh, there's this need here, but that is applicable to people who speak different languages. And so we've designed our product in a way to where it works with people with different languages um, seamlessly, right? And so they're able to self-select, they're able to, you know, make these adjustments into where the product is going to work no matter where you are or, you know, what languages is that you speak, right? So those are mm -hmm. um, thinking about like more broadly, if the, is the dimension of diversity, for instance, going to be language, um, then you, that helps you sort of expand more broadly to a broader group of people while only really changing one aspect of your product design um, and, or your, pro your marketing overall. Another thing that right. you can consider is, like I said, making the niche consumer the lead consumer. So this is a very specific example, but it can be applicable for a broader range. I follow a gluten-free diet for health reasons. Um, and my sister does as well. We recently went to a family reunion where of the 14 people who were in the group, two of them are gluten-free. How did we choose the restaurant or every restaurant that we went to over the course of that weekend? Whether based upon how well they catered to the needs of gluten-free people, right? Um, so we became the lead consumer. If a restaurant didn't work for us and our particular needs, the entire group did not go. It didn't even get into the consideration set. So if you're thinking about how can you reach a broader group of people, um, 
go down and focus on very specifically niche consumers meet their needs. And then you're quickly going to discover that there are a number of other people who are going to find utility in what you've done. You're not going to just only focus on this one group of people because there's going to be a much broader group who will get a benefit of it. Nike did this, um, for instance, whenever they designed a shoe where you can get a a tennis shoe where you can get into it and out of it hands-free, right? They designed it for the community who had physical disabilities where maybe they didn't have any hands, they didn't have access to their hands, um, they had some mobility issues. It was designed specifically for them with them in mind, but are they the only ones using the shoe? Not at all. There are plenty of people who through the course of their day find, and they found out even children like these types of shoes, right? Um, There's Mm -hmm. utility. They designed it for one very small group of people, but it had much massive, um, more massive appeal because there were a lot of other people who were able to see, oh, this works for me in that instance. So going back to their founders, they it's not that they have to rack their brain and think about all these different resources that they're going to have to spend and invest. If they choose even just one dimension of diversity to focus on, go all in on that, they're going to find that they're going to be able to reach a much broader group of people because there's that spillover effect or you know just that one area um, and the utility of it will find that it expands your market significantly. I absolutely love that uh, slip-on shoes uh, example, and, and I think that that helps in framing things. Now, let's change tact a little bit. I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, we were chatting about was the previous episode that you tuned into on Billion Dollar Moves uh, with Paul Ark, who was a uh, you know a managing director of a hundred million uh, corporate venture capital fund in in Thailand, and also is uh, you know an angel investor, venture capitalist, deep in ESG and, and diversity. And one of the things that he talked about was his success factor in per, in producing a top performing CVC in fintech for its vintage was by hiring a diverse team and really focusing on bringing in the right people. And this is actually something that is very challenging for a lot of folks in my industry. I will say, say that, you know, in, in venture capital uh, till today, you know, the majority of venture firms still don't have majority uh, female venture partners, uh, female partners, female GPs, and we want to change that. But how do we go about it when we're starting from really a, a very hard starting point? So one of the things that I loved about the episode and specifically what he said, um, he talked about he was going to hire four people on his team and he knew that he wanted to hire two women and two men, right? So that's, he had gender parity immediately, right? In terms of the team that he was going to hire. And what I loved about it was the specificity that he had in what he wanted his team makeup to be, because he also talked about having, um, senior people as well as junior people, because it was important to have that mix in experience um, because they were going to come from different perspectives. A lot of times when people are hiring or they're recruiting, they focus on the percentage of people that they're going to interview. Oh, we want to increase the number of women that we have on our team. So we're going to increase the number of women that we're going to interview. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that that means you're going to automatically increase the number of women that you hire. And I think it's a small distinction, but it um, it's one that can make a big difference. Let's say you say, we're going to um, make sure that 50% of our candidate slate is women. Um, you could still hire all men <laughs> as a result of yeah. doing that, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to change the makeup of your team. And it kind of sets you up to tokenizing a little bit more in terms of your overall process. Whereas like you're trying to, um, get like just one person in on your team from diversification standpoint, but whenever you're clear upfront about who your team needs to have and the percentages or thinking about the customers that you're serving in terms of, are they, um, 50% men, 50% women, are they, um, 20% 20% black? Are they 30% Latino? Whatever the numbers are, are they um, uh, 20% Asian? Whatever the numbers are in the makeup, think about what your team looks like, what your customers look like, and the type of culture that you want to create. And then you can sort of say, all right, this is what my team needs. And you can go out and hire for it exactly the way that your guests did where you know specifically, I need to hire this many women. I need to hire this many people who are of Asian descent. I need to hire this many people who are from whatever other dimension of diversity that you're looking for. And whenever you're thinking about it more of, this is the makeup that I want my team to have, and this is who I want to hire, it changes completely your recruitment process, as well as the expectation and the culture that you're creating on your team as it relates to diversity, because it's showing how much you value having those different points of view and different perspectives. And then it's going beyond just saying diversity important to proving that diversity is important based upon who you're hiring. Yeah. So Sonia, if if I can unpack that a little bit, you know, one you're saying essentially what we call the Rooney rule, right? We've brought on a version of the Rooney rule to the investment uh, landscape as well. Uh, And it has worked with some success, not complete success, But when you say, you know, let's not only look at the top of the funnel, let's look at the end result. um, Mm -hmm. What then else needs to change in the hiring process? So you mentioned the Rooney Rule, and that comes from like, I believe that comes from football here in the US, right? NFL. Mm -hmm. And the Rooney, let's be clear, the Rooney Rule has not fundamentally changed the makeup of hiring of um, the diversity of the coaches in the U.S. Like it hasn't really worked to move the needle. So even though a lot of people have sort of adopted it um, and it sounds great in theory, it's more of making sure that, you know, um, going back to the overall recruitment process, if we need to hire three women, right? If we need to hire three black women, whatever it is, whatever the makeup is, then it sort of forces you or it changes your thinking about where you go to find these groups of people. So instead of putting it up on a very specific job board um, where everyone can apply, right? Um, And there are times where that's necessary to do that. It might force you to go very specific to um, a women-specific professional organization. I went to an HBCU, a historically black college and university in the U.S., Florida A&M. And whenever I finished business school, um, I went and worked for um, my my corporate job 
based upon them coming on campus and specifically re- recruiting for black talent. Why were they at my university specifically recruiting for b- black talent? Of course, I feel like it was a great program, but they were fishing where the fish were, right? If they mm-hmm. knew that they needed a diverse talent, why wouldn't you go to an event or on-campus recruiting where there is an abundance of exactly what it is that you're looking for? Um, so it changes whenever you're specific about who you need to hire and the makeup of your team. Um, in the recruitment process, it could drastically change your tactics of where you go because you're going to make sure that you're going to the place where you're going to find an abundance of the talent that you need versus casting your net wide and hoping and praying that you get sort of a diverse group of candidates who are applying for your position. One other thing yeah. to note on this that it help, could help you, um, whereas I think a lot of people don't necessarily focus on this area, but it is tremendously beneficial. A lot of times when people are hiring, especially when it comes to venture capital, smaller startups, um, et cetera, they're hiring based upon their network. Um, This happens in larger companies as well. The challenge is most people's networks are very homogenous. So if you are looking to diversify your team, but you've got a homogenous network, those things are incongruent, right? So it's important that we all, and this takes time, that we all focus on diversifying our networks because if you want to continue to hire in that way, you have to change something that will make it more likely that you'll be recommended someone from somebody in your network who knows these fantastic, you know, this great talent that that's available, um, but because they've got a diverse network and they've got access to a broader range of people versus you hiring the same type of person over and over and over again because you've got this homogenous network. Oh, I love that. I mean, you are singing to my choir. Uh, <laughs> so things that you said that is number one, of course, go to where your target sits, right? So speak to your customer, meet your customers where they are, meet your stakeholders where they are is point number one. Point number two is uh, don't underestimate your the power of your network and especially in venture capital. I mean, I know this from the work that we do uh, that, you know, there's a lot of trust, there's a lot of relationships uh, that actually brings people into the system. But of course, when you sort of work through that, there's biases and there's, yep. you know, what does comfort look like, right? So it's really challenging yourself to say, what do my networks actually look like? And how can I expect to get these results if I don't change my construct of my own network in itself? Right, right. And so as we think about just diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, So much of it, I think people think of it at an organizational level, but there's a big part of it that's individual as well, right? Um, Because we can get rid of our own biases by the more we interact with and build relationships with people who are different from us. It just makes us better people overall, um, but it also makes us better business people. And it has a number of benefits that trickle down into your perception, the way you view the world, the way you view different groups of people, the way you view the people that you serve, the way you operate or think about how you run your business and what works well and what doesn't. So yeah, um, making sure that you don't sort of 
skip out on that individual aspect of it, whereas mm. diversifying your network can go a long way to helping you um, do the work and broaden your perspective in a number of areas. Yeah. And in fact, Sonia, you know, I'm happy to share with you one of the big multi-billion uh, venture funds that we work with, what they did was exactly that, right? They brought on, you know, they had, I want to say, one woman partner out of the many, and they brought on uh, one specifically to look at gender as a strategy, right? As a mm-hmm. growth strategy. And from there, built out the team. And now they're fully ESG uh, focused as well uh, in developing returns and, and driving returns and that all started with bringing in someone that was different from the status quo that they mm-hmm. uh, then were starting to see the deal flow change, right? The messaging into who their customers were, the stakeholders, i.e. the female founders, you know, the, the, the message with the billion dollar fund for women is funds that sign up with this have the welcome mat. Uh, open for women. And with that, you know, we get excellent, excellent deal flow. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron or could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. In a full 360 view of every customer, so your go-to-market team can keep a pulse on accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. Now, I want to go a little bit further because now, um, because I've been doing this work for some time now, the challenge still uh, doesn't end there, right? It's not enough to hire diverse teams. And in fact, one of the large financial firms I work with had shared with me confidentially that, hey, you know, Sarah, we realized one of the mistakes that we made was we expected diversity from the diverse talent that we brought in. Mm -hmm. But it didn't always work out. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is? A lot of times brands um, or companies will hire diverse talent and that person, it feels like they want to do that. What they want that person to do double duty. They want them to do the job that they've hired them to do, but they also want them to do the job of sort of being the ambassador for whatever group they belong to. So if you're the only woman on the team, they want you to be the person who signs off on, provides input on everything woman-related. If you are the only person who's on um, the team who's LGBTQ+, it's like you are the spokesperson suddenly (laughs) for that group. And that is unfair to that person. One, because one person, of course, can't speak for an entire group. Um, And two, Mm. because um, that's not their job unless they were hired for it specifically. So it's like you're treating them like an unpaid consultant because you're, you know, expecting them to weigh in on and provide input on things that might ha- have anything to do with their job. And third, and quite possibly most importantly, 
if they weren't hired for that specific purpose or they don't have expertise in that particular area, they might not be able to speak to or probably won't be able to speak to credibly that entire group of people because that's not their area of expertise. Sure, they're they're, you know, I'm a black woman and I have lived experiences that um I could speak to and that I can offer up, but I cannot do that for black people in general, right? Like, and it shouldn't be an expectation. And because I have my own experiences, I have my own preferences, and that can be completely different from my sister, from somebody that I don't know, from, you know, the group of people who, you know, have completely different set of experiences um, that I do. I'm tainted by certain privileges that I have, whereas other people might not have those same ones. And it's just really unfair for that team member um, to kind of take on that role and responsibility and that challenge, especially if they weren't hired for that specifically, they don't have that area of expertise, or they weren't expecting that this would be a part of their job, right? So if they're brought on and then suddenly they're peppered with all these questions and expected to be sort of the face of whatever community they're a part of, it can then breed in a bit of resentment. And also it kind of makes the rest of your team feel as if they don't have to develop the degree of intimacy with the customer group that you're trying to serve. If you always go to Sarah to ask Sarah about um, the Asian market, because Sarah knows, you know, she's got some knowledge about it, then when are you ever going to learn about it on your own? Um, when are you ever mm-hmm. going to build that bench and that competency on the rest of your team if you're constantly relying on Sarah or whatever the person in your office um, to be able to do that? So if yeah, you're I love that. Ser- serious about building a diverse team, and there are a number of studies that talk about diverse teams outperform their peers that aren't diverse, right, on a number of different areas. If you actually want to get the benefits of having a diverse team, you need to embed inclusion into the overall team culture. And it needs to be everyone's job, not just the one or two, quote unquote, diverse talent team members that you've got on the team. Yeah, so absolutely love this. I want to make this as practical as possible for our guests, right? Who are decision makers, who are building teams every day. So number one is, you know, you can't burden and expect a diverse talent to deliver diversity if it's not part of their job description. But how can we actually um, do it in a way that makes sense, right? If, you know, we do want to, like we said, top of the call, you know, we wanted to make sure that our team reflects the market that we serve or reflects the future that we want, right? In venture capital, I will say, we can't just say that, oh, uh, in call it AI. There's not many women in in AI and therefore we don't have to hire women. This is where things, you know, it's sort of a flywheel effect and creates the reality that we have today, right? And that's why we're sort of forward looking. Uh, But how do we hire, retain and create a culture of, like you said, accountability? And I think Paul said this in the call as well in his episode um, that it was necessary to have a culture which is unlike most Asian culture where it's very hierarchical, mm-hmm. where there was ability to debate. How, how do we build all of this? 
Yeah, you have to create an environment where psychological safety exists. Now, again, I want to I want to underscore the point of it's not like if you hire women um we're not or if you hire, you know, have a diverse team that you're never asking people to weigh in on um their experiences, right? Um from the whatever community group. You do want them to speak up, but it's important to establish that from the beginning, even during the recruitment and the interview process. Mm -hmm. Again, not to say that you need to be the spokesman for this community, but hey, Sonia, as a black woman, and I'm acknowledging that you are a black woman, right? You're going to bring unique perspectives and um, points of view that we don't have on our team. So we would love it. We welcome your point of view for you to speak up whenever you have you know, something that you feel like is valuable to add, when you have something to say, when you have a point of view that we're maybe not considering, that changes the tone and sets the stage where it's not like it's my responsibility for you to like constantly ask me to sign off on something, but you're welcoming me, welcoming me and um, letting me know that my voice, my point of view is valuable and that I should often speak up and um, I should speak up and let my voice be heard, especially whenever the team isn't necessarily considering something that they should. Setting that expectation from the interview process is um, really sort of sets the stage for people to know that their point of view is valued. Um, so going back to what you just mentioned about culture and different cultures, not necessarily um, some being very hierarchical, so it's not necessarily the thing that people are accustomed or comfortable with doing, just making sure that you're regularly calling people in, asking them, hey, how do you feel about this? What's your point of view? What's your experiences? Over time, as people keep seeing that it's okay to speak up, it's okay to provide your point of view, um, and it's welcomed, and there's no sort of negative consequences for deviating from what, you know, somebody who's a higher up might have said, or is different from what the group may be thinking. The more people see that um, differences in opinion are valued and can help make a better work environment and product, they will get more comfortable in, in doing that um, and speaking up. And if, you need to specifically reach out to people and ask them, hey, Sarah, what do you think? Hey, Sonia, what do you think? Um, until they get to the point to where they're offering it up on their own, then that's what you're going to have to do to make sure that you're creating that culture where people are able to see that we value, we respect, we need different points of view. And that's how we really leverage the power of having a diverse team. Yeah. And one of the things that actually we learned uh, in working with over 100 venture capital funds to drive returns through diversity, you know, invest more into women-led companies is that, you know, we can do as many unconscious bias trainings, uh, subconscious, unconscious, whatever you call it these days. But what really moves the dial is actually changing the processes, right? So something that uh, a good friend actually shared with me that has stuck with me throughout the work that I do is, you know, Sarah, you can hope to change personal biases, but every day challenge yourself and ask yourself, what are the systems and structures 
that you're holding in place because of beliefs that you've been brought up with, privilege you happen yep. to uh, stumble into, right? And things like that. When you think about the companies that you've worked with, right? You've worked with like Fortune 50 companies and in diversifying their teams, their messaging and, and so many others. What do you think is most important when you think about the systems and structures that has existed to hold some communities back? I think it's important to acknowledge that um, equity programs are important and knowing that their inequities exist, right? So if you first acknowledge that inequities exist, then you can work to do something about it, right? Through the systems that you have in place in your company and the policies. If you acknowledge that um, diversity our diversity, equity, inclusion challenges aren't going to be fixed on their own, um, then you can then say, all right, well, what is it that we are able to do so that we're able as a company to move the needle forward um, and and not expect for it to happen organically? Um, So going back to what we were talking about earlier about building a diverse team, that goes with looking at the makeup of your team, right? Acknowledging here are the goals and for specific um, uh, targets that we would have in terms of what we think our team should look like based upon the customers we're serving, et cetera. Um, and then you can go back and adjust your recruitment process to then align with the end goal that you're trying to reach. Um, if you want to make sure that you are diversifying your user base, your customer base, Start by thinking about what is the end goal that you want to get to, and then think back to, all right, what are the processes that we need to have what um, that will um, enable us to support and get that way? Because a lot of times people have um, metrics, they have performance metrics that are contrary to a specific goal that they have. So that's why going back Mm -hmm. to the original discussion, it's important that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are embedded into your business strategy Um, because then it's easier to hold people accountable, bake it into their performance metrics, bake it into your business metrics so that everything works together in supporting it rather than feeling like you're having to fight for resources, which is more important, which is not, which is a priority, which is not, Whenever it's all aligned, then you can adjust whatever policies that you might have in place internally to then support you getting to whatever this goal is that you've stated that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And and I, I love that when you think about um, the goals that you're setting and how oftentimes that can be, you know, you, you're expecting this, but you actually set it as this and, and that doesn't jive. When you've looked at some of these examples, what what comes to mind? Um, so I think that there are sometimes, um, let's say, <clears throat> excuse me, we want to come to, we were talking about recruiting, so this is the one that's kind of popping up for me before, right now. We want to hire more diverse talent, but we're only going to these top 10 deemed schools that we've deemed Mm -hmm. that the best talent comes from, right? We say that we've got these very specific, um, we want to build a more diverse team, but we haven't changed anything about the way that we source talent, 
right? So um, because we haven't changed the way we source talent, where we go, because we haven't looked at um, how we even interview people, right? Um, you know, do we put these panels in place um, where everyone in the panel has a very clear sort of focused idea in their mind about what good talent looks like, right? Or what experiences they have to have that makes them, you know, sort of a good candidate for this position. If we put a goal in place, but haven't changed the way we think about what good looks like or what it has to be or anything about our process that makes it more inclusive of people who don't fit into the mold of what we've you know, historically deemed as important, then we're going to continue to get the same result. Or if we do bring on some new talent, the culture that we've created isn't one that is conducive for them to be able to thrive and actually bring the benefit that you created. Um, so it's more a matter of once you've defined this goal, then look at every step of the journey that you're going through to make sure that um, it is supporting what that goal is that you want. Um, and it's not sort of perpetuating the same, the more of the same that you've historically gone through, right? So if it going, keeping with that one thing of recruitment, where are you going to source talent? How are you interviewing them? How are you determining your degree of success? How are you writing your job descriptions? I read something that said that um, um, one word, I believe that there was one tech company, they were looking for engineers and they described the engineer that they were looking for as a ninja. Um, and because of that, um, I think they only received like 2% of women who were applying for the job, but whenever they like took that word ninja out, um, like yeah. immediately the number of candidates they got from women, specifically women shot up and you wouldn't think that that word would make that big of a difference, but it did. Right. Just because of the way people were thinking about what that role was, was it right for them? And so we have to be vigilant and thinking about every step of the process, not to say we have to change everything right away, but know that there are a lot of contributing factors, systemic things that ha exist within organizations that make a big difference in terms of the results that you're going to get. So whenever you get serious about saying, we want to achieve this goal, you're going to have to evaluate you know, every part of your process to make sure that it is supporting the outcomes that you want to reach. Yeah. Well, I hope this is an aha moment for many that are tuning in because I've heard this so many times by, you know, top decision makers, right? A CIO of a top endowment. And, and I think you know this, you know, the American endowments are a huge source of uh, funding actually for the venture capital industry. You know, they're multi-billion. You think about Yale, the Ivy Leagues and things like that. And they do have, um, you know, holdings in private equity of which uh, alternatives being venture capital is a, a leading source of their returns for many of them. Uh, touch wood, so, you know, so far. And uh, one of the things that they do do is hire from their own university itself, right? Mm -hmm. So when they think about why are the LP, so the limited partner investors that invest into the venture capital funds, not as diverse, is because of what you exactly said, right? How are they writing their job descriptions? Are they saying that they need to have had that Ivy League privilege? And of course, you know, right. not everyone has that opportunity, that, but doesn't that doesn't make them lesser off. The other thing that I like to... Um, 
bring as an example, which is closer to our industry, is you know when we evaluate venture capital funds, the key thing that a lot of uh, LPs ask for is the track record, mm. right? What's your ten-year track record in this industry? What have you delivered? But of course, as you said, this is like asking the intern who's looking for job experience right. or job experience. And right. that, you know, cancels out a huge population, which is where the opportunity lies. Right. And I think that sometimes people have this ill-conceived perception that there's only one way to prove or demonstrate your experience. And if we look at the digital world, um, for examples, it, for instance, the people that are getting hired, for instance, now, or the people who are getting results, they don't have an MBA with, you know, 10 years of experience, um, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, checking, you know, X number of boxes. They're the people who are like, um, have one to two years of experience, self-taught through trial and error. And they are mopping the floor with people who might have all that other traditional experience because they've got lived experience, real world experience that um, works for what is happening today, right? And as we think about um, the markets, and I'm not sure within the venture capital um, um, world if this if things are changing as rapidly as they do in some of the other markets, but there are times where what worked 15 years ago or what worked sometimes even five years ago is completely different than the way in which people operate um, or the way in which the consumer thinks and operates and makes decisions, right? So we have to, of course, there are industry um best practices and industry things that work. And we need to stick with those um, where it makes sense. But we also need to acknowledge that our consumer, the people who are buying the products that we have, um, they are changing because everything around them is changing in terms of how they consume inf information, how they engage with brands, how they buy, their attention span, et cetera. So we need to make sure that we're adapting um, our industry practices with what is actually happening with the consumer and finding a way to sort of meet that in the middle and understanding that what may have worked previously, we're not throwing it out the window, but just acknowledging that there are also other ways of operating and we need to reflect that on our teams um, in, in, in the way that we sort of operate and make decisions. Yeah, so I was shaking my head there because it's, it's almost uh, a ridiculous uh, concept, but we invest in technology, which of course is changing rapidly every day, mm -hmm. but venture capital as an industry itself has not innovated in decades, right? You know, it started as what many don't realize is actually a co cottage kind of industry where, you know, they had extra money and then, uh, you know, started investing in others and built that up over the years. But, you know, and that brings me to the the last question that I have for you, you know, because we're in the state, you know, it is a dire state. We need to change um, drastically and we need to change dramatically. But what I get pushback on is, you know, Sarah, this, look at the results, right? The system is not broken. Mm -hmm. Why do we have to change it? What do you say to naysayers like this when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion being the driving force of what we need to do for our future? 
It's kind of like um, whenever the sun is shining. Okay, I'm going to go back to this. Okay. Um, so I live in Florida, and a couple of months ago, we had a hurricane, right? We've had this big, mm. giant hurricane come up. And thankfully, where we live, every, we were spared, but it was devastating for a lot of other people, right? Um, leading up to the hurricane, like at least five days before the hurricane, uh, we were preparing for the hurricane. Everyone was going to the grocery store. They were buying their food. Um, you know, the day before the hurricane, we were, you know, putting up our storm shutters on our house. We brought everything inside. It was sunshine outside, right? There was no rain. There was no cloud in sight. Everything was, you know, it was perfect weather, but we knew a hurricane was coming. So we prepared accordingly for the hurricane, whether the hurricane comes or not, we are prepared. We've got our water, we've got our food, we've got our snacks. The house is prepared. Um, so then what happened? The hurricane hit. The people who were prepared, they were able to weather the storm, right? Now, unfortunately, there's some people that they weren't, you know, no matter what happened, they weren't ready. But we would have been called irresponsible if we know that this hurricane is coming and we don't do anything because it's sunshine outside, right? Um, and we can't always look at what's happening today as a marker for what we need to do to weather market changes in the future. Um, because change is going to happen. That's inevitable. Change is going to happen. And if we don't do what we need to do to prepare our businesses, to prepare our teams today for these impending changes that come, we're going to find ourselves ill-equipped um, and unprepared. And the results could be devastating because the storm, the storms arrive. And if you know we don't have what we need, then um, it doesn't matter that there was a sunny day whenever we were going back to it. A storm is going to come, period, right? So better to be ready and not need it than to be not ready and need it. Um, because you know, it's very it could be very difficult for you to recover if you're not ready. Yeah, well, I would sum it up in this simple phrase. The train is leaving the station. Are you hopping on or are you not? Yes. And with that, Sonia, thank you so much for your time, your invaluable expertise and, you know, sharing all your your insights into what is, as you and I believe, to be really what will drive our future and what is important for all of us as leaders to stay true to, to keep making billion dollar moves. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really great discussion. Woo! We sure did cover a lot of ground with that conversation. And if there's one thing I want you to latch on to as you work to build an inclusive brand, it's that whatever your goals are, and especially as it relates to inclusion, and I'm, I'm saying this because many people struggle here, make sure that the systems, processes, and even, I guess, an institutionalized way of thinking that exists within the culture, within your organization, is supportive of rather than in conflict to those goals that you've set. You can't just set new goals without changing the way you operate to make it possible for you to achieve those goals. And if you'd like my help on ensuring the goals you set are supported by the right systems, KPIs, and even capabilities, check out my program, Inclusive Brand Academy. Go to inclusivebrandacademy.com for more details. 
That's it for this bonus episode. Do go have a listen to Sarah's Billion Dollar Moves podcast. She's got lots of great content from people you're no doubt going to learn a ton from. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves to have a place where they belong. Let's use our individual and collective power to ensure more people feel like they do. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.